This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Romans chapter 6, please keep your Bibles open there. If you've got one of the uh, Romans journaling Bibles, you can open that one up to page 26. We're going to be camped out in Romans 6 this morning. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive straight into God's Word. So let me, let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. And this morning, amidst the busyness of our weeks and the craziness of school holidays and semester breaks, God, we want to hit the pause button and still our hearts and let our minds slow down and open ourselves to you this morning and say, please speak. God, we know that you want to do a work in every single person here this morning your desire is that you would change us and transform us and make us more like Jesus. And we know that it is based on the authority and sufficiency of your word that that happens as your spirit takes the word and applies it to our hearts. And so God, would you anoint the preaching of your word now? Please give us ears to hear what you have to say to us by your spirit. Change us and transform us, we pray in Jesus' powerful name and all of God's people said, Amen. A couple of um, years ago, I was teaching throughout Introducing Introducing Jesus course, which if you don't know is a course particularly for people who have questions or um, exploring uh, the things of faith. And it's a four-week course that unpacks Jesus, the man, his mission, and his message. And if you're new to the things of faith, the message of Jesus is a message of grace. It's not a message of rules. It's not a message of if you do this, then God will accept you. It's Jesus has loved you and accepted you all the way to the cross. And on the basis of that, we live our lives. And as I was unpacking this concept of grace, one of the girls in the course, as she was tracking with it and thinking about put her hand up, she said, hang on a sec, can I just get this straight? What you're saying is God will forgive any and every sin I commit. I said, yes, that's it. You're getting it. God will, he has promised to forgive any and every sin that we commit. She said, it just seems too good to be true that I could do whatever I want and then God's going to forgive me. I'll get away with it. And I was like, well, kind of. It's not quite like that, but you're getting there. And it's almost that moment where someone starts to understand grace. That's the objection that starts to rise up inside. us. Well, hang on a second. This sounds too good to be true. Alternatively, I remember a story that the, the author, excuse me, <clears throat> Philip Yancey tells in one of his books, he tells a story of one of his parishioners who rang him up and said, "Uh, Pastor, can we go out for lunch? Got a couple of questions for you. And so he went out for lunch with this person from his church and the person from his church proceeded to tell him that uh, he was leaving his wife of 30 years because he was going to have an affair with a woman who was 15 years younger than him and follow his heart and chase his dreams and be done with his marriage. And he says to Philip Yancey in this lunch meeting, he said, Pastor Will, God forgive me for what I'm about to do. Will God forgive me for what I'm about to do? Now, how do you answer someone who wants to use grace as an excuse to walk into sin? But the reality is it's actually a pretty good question, right? When we think about what grace is, when we go back to thinking about last week, where we left in Romans chapter 5, that grace wins. Every single time, grace wins. 
It defeats sin and death. It undoes the work of Adam. It is more powerful than that. And grace triumphs. Grace has the victory. Grace wins. When we consider that, this question is a logical question. If grace wins, if grace triumphs, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then surely I should just go on sinning because it makes God look good and, and grace overflows at that point. Why be good? If Jesus accepts you as you are, why bother changing? Why worry about sin and repentance and confession and all those sorts of things if grace covers everything? It was my uh, journey to faith as a young man. I grew up in a Christian home and went to church and Sunday school and youth ministry and I wore the right clothes and spoke all the right Christianese words and I had every answer to every question you could possibly want to ask me about the Christian faith, but my life looked very different to the words that rolled off my mouth. You see, there were two mats on Friday night at youth group and on Sunday at church there was Christian mat and then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday until youth group and then after Friday and then Saturday and particularly Saturday night it was party Matt and Matt who just wanted to do all the fun things that his friends were doing and party, take drugs, get drunk, drink alcohol and I just flipped and flopped between those two different versions of me for many years thinking that that was okay that I was forgiven for all of the things I did on Saturday night because I turned up to church on Sunday. Or not so much because I turned up to church, because Jesus was my saviour. I knew that. I needed that. I knew I needed that. I liked that part about the good news. The part I didn't like was that Jesus then demanded of me that I needed to follow him with everything. And so I enjoyed the good news of Jesus being my saviour and rejected the good news of Jesus being my Lord and lived my own, my own way. And it wasn't until year 11, I remember sitting in church and one of the pastors was preaching through Ephesians 2 and unpacking this beautiful concept of grace and it hit me in that moment. that I was taking a free gift that God was giving me and I was throwing it back in his face. And in that moment, my life was radically changed. I was all in And I decided to surrender my life to Jesus. And absolutely everything changed in that moment. I went from smoking and drinking and abusing drugs and alcohol and in a very unhealthy relationship to completely living sold out. Not perfect, but my trajectory was very different after that Sunday evening. Now you've got to ask yourself a question. Is that a problem? Is it a problem if you live a life that says one thing and doesn't? Is it a problem if... We can say, well, I'll just receive the, the good bit, but I'm not going to worry about the lordship bit. I'll just receive the saviour bit, but not worry about Jesus being boss of my life. Is that a problem? And you might say, yeah, well, that is definitely a problem for you if you're going to be a pastor, right? You can't do that. You can't live a double life. It's called being a hypocrite. No one likes it. Aussies in particular, we hate it. It's not good. But what about for you? What about for the, the average punter? What, is that okay for you? To, to live in such a way that would claim the grace of God and then cheapen that grace by saying it doesn't really matter how I live. Is, is, is that okay for any of us? Why not party Saturday night because, hey, you're going to turn up here on Sunday morning and someone's going to preach grace. Why not sleep with him? Hey, we're getting married anyway. It doesn't really matter. I mean, why, why bother with church? Being a Christian isn't about attending church anyway. Why bother? If grace covers everything, 
What's the point? That's the objection that's raised here in Romans 6, verse 1, that Paul anticipates. Remember, as we walk through the book of Romans, Paul has this imaginary objector, this imaginary heckler who interjects at moments in the letter that he's writing to the church in Rome. And here is one of his objections that is raised. Well, hang on a sec, Paul. If everything that you just said about grace is true, then it doesn't really matter how I live my life. And Paul's answer to that is a very firm and unequivocal by no means. He'll ask that question twice. In Romans 6 verse 2 and in Romans 6.15, that question will come up. If this is what it means, then therefore this. And Paul will say, by no means. Or the 2019 slang version of that will be, hell no. You want to keep living like that? Hell no. That is absolutely not appropriate for you if you are a Christian. And I think we all need to hear this this morning. I think I need to hear this. I, I, I know you need to hear this. There are some of you sitting here this morning who are feeling trapped because of perpetual sin in your life. You're walking through the continuous cycle of sin and then guilt and then shame and then condemnation and then you beat yourself up and after a season of self-punishment you begin to feel good again and then the cycle just repeats itself over and over again. You feel stuck and you feel trapped. There's some of you here this morning who are using the grace and the goodness of God as a license to live any way you choose. And you're cheapening grace and you're living a call to follow Jesus that is diminished because you say, yes, I'll follow Jesus, but I'm not going to live a life of repentance. I'll call myself a Christian, but I'm not going to change. I'll do this, but there's no transformation in my life. And there are some of you who, if you're honest, you're just really tired. Like you've been fighting hard against the sin in your life and it's just hard work. And you feel beat up and tired and ready to tap out and give up. And so I think we need this word this morning. We need to be reminded of the effects of grace in our Christian walk and in our lives. And I know that's true for me. I need this. Because there are areas of Christian atheism in my own walk, right? Areas where I say I believe something, but the practicalities deny that truth. Like areas like where I say, you know, we live for the audience of one, and yet there's fear of man and approval-seeking tendencies in my heart. We say that Jesus is our rest, and yet I find most of my rest in checking out on social media and just flicking through what everyone else is doing. We say that, I'm totally dependent on God for everything and yet walk in self-sufficiency and prayerlessness and self-effort. I I need this message. You need this message. And so here's Paul's question. Chapter 6, verse 1, this is what he says. What shall we say then? So as we consider everything that we've just spoken about in chapter 5, about Adam and about Jesus and about how Jesus undoes the work of Adam and draws us from death to life because of his grace, because of the free gift that he has given. And that free gift is his righteousness, that he has given us freely, not by work, not by effort, not by striving, not by trying, but by a gift of his grace. He has declared us to be justified. He has gifted us his perfect righteousness. What shall we say then because of all of that? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's what he said in the last chapter. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer, hell no. By no means. Now why not? Why not? That's what I need to know. And Paul will give us two answers here in Romans chapter 6. And the first is, he's going to say, you have a new life. And the second is, you have a new master. You have a new life and a new master. Firstly, let's have a look at our new life in Christ. Look at verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, it's important to notice here, as Paul talks about sin in Romans chapter 6, he's speaking of big, capital S, sin. Not all of the little sins that we do, but sin as a dominion, sin as a power, sin as a ruler, sin as an authority. He is talking about big S, sin. Is that right? That's an S to you guys, right? Anyway, whatever. Getting distracted here. Big S sin. So if you cast your minds back to the Garden of Eden, Adam Adam and Eve were given dominion and authority to rule over the world. And yet in Genesis 3, they forsook the commands of God. They chose their own way. And instead of Adam and Eve and humanity ruling over creation, sin enters the story. And now sin, big capital S sin, reigns. And the result is death. We saw that last week in Romans chapter 5. And so Paul says that those, therefore, who have been baptized, that is, if you have had a profession of faith, that what is symbolized in the act of baptism, that you have died and you've been raised again, if that's true internally for you, and you've received the outward symbol of that, Paul is saying that that is what has happened to you. You have died with Christ and your old self has been buried with him. As you go down into the waters of baptism, symbolically you have died with Christ. Your old self has been buried. And then as Christ was raised from the dead, as we come up out of the waters, we've been raised to new life. What a beautiful picture of this new life that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Those of us who have been united to him and have faith in him. His point is, because you have been connected to Jesus, united to him. What happens to Jesus happens to you. Now, this is actually really difficult. I, I, to be honest with you, I completely do not fully understand union with Christ. It's like a mind-boggling mystery of theology that I don't quite get. It doesn't make it any less true or real or significant. And it's very hard to illustrate. But Brad came up with a beautiful illustration this week, and so I've stolen it from his sermon that he doesn't get to preach. Um, But I actually have no idea what it's talking about because it's a Harry Potter illustration and I don't think I've watched more than 10 minutes of Harry Potter when it's on TV. But apparently, if you are a wizard under the age of 17, you cannot apparate. 
And you need to, in order to apparate, you need assisted apparition. You're like, what the heck is assisted apparition? It's just uh, teleportation, right? So you, apparition is you're in one place and you disappear in that place and you appear in another place. I think that's right. Please, Harry Potter fans, don't crucify me for this illustration. But um, Harry, if he's under the age of 17, he can't apparate. He doesn't have those powers. He needs to hold on to Dumbledore or hold on to some other wizard who's... Is it Dumbledore? That's it. That's amazing. I've never even seen that. But that, that is assisted apparition. And what happens to Dumbledore, what happens to Harry, happens because he's connected to, linked to, touching Dumbledore, right? And... That is an illustration of what happens to us in Christ because we are connected to Jesus, because we are linked to Jesus. What happens to him happens to us. And so he has died and he has been risen again. We have died. Our old self is dead. We have new life in Christ. It's not just Jesus who dies on the cross 2,000 years ago. It was you. It's not just Jesus who rose again from the dead. It In fact, it was you. For those of you who have faith in Jesus, you are connected to him, union with Christ. Which means we die to sin. And we're no longer under the power, under the rule and dominion of sin. But you might think, well, hang on, it actually feels like that at times. My experience is that I feel like I'm under the power of sin. I feel like I'm under the rule of sin. I feel like I'm under its control so often in my life. And it's important for us to understand what Christ has done on the cross. When we talk about the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he pays the penalty for sin. But his life given, he dies, his blood is shed and he is a substitute, a sacrifice of atonement Romans 3:21. Or 23, Romans 3, 23. He is in our place. He pays the penalty for sin. Also, he deals with the power of sin and disarms it. You see, the power of sin is death. right? It's the wage that sin incurs is death. And Jesus, by his resurrection, conquers death, defeats death, and removes its power. That's why he can say in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? It has been defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so both the penalty of sin and the power of sin have been dealt with at the cross, and yet the presence of sin remains for us. We live in a time between the ascension of Jesus and before his return called the end days. And in that time, in the time we live, We're not free from the presence of sin. Sin is not completely removed until Jesus ushers in the new age, the age to come. And so our experience now of this life is this wrestle, is this tension between our desires that we have from God and our flesh which wars against our soul. And we're going to look at that next week in Romans chapter 7, or the week after next in Romans chapter 7. And so the penalty of sin is paid. The, the power of sin is removed, but the presence of sin still remains. Sin, in terms of its rule and dominion, is done. Like we went to the funeral, we saw the coffin go down and buried over. We went to the wake, we didn't go back for flowers 
it is done. Sin is finished. Its control and rule and reign are over because it has been buried with Christ. I want you to imagine for a moment that I owe a very large sum of money, um, $25,000. I owe this sum of money to James Dawson. I borrowed it to buy a, a fully sick Harley because um, I needed to, because you need two motorbikes. So I borrowed twenty five grand off James to buy a new Harley. And uh, I hadn't paid him back for a number of years, and then James died. Now, who do I pay at that point, right? James is dead. I don't owe this debt to anyone. Well, perhaps maybe I do owe it to Callan. This illustration is backfiring on me. Pretend James is single. He's not married. (laughs) He doesn't have a wife. He's got no extended family. Who do I owe that debt to at that point? He has died. I cannot pay a dead man a debt. And what Paul is saying here is that you have died to sin. You do not owe a debt to sin any longer. You cannot pay that debt. You do not live there. You've been given new life. And so you used to live here paying this debt, living in these patterns, but now you have new life and you live here. The old self has died and the new life has been raised with Christ. You know, when I was, um, before I got married, I was single. Oh, I know, right? And when I was single, I lived like a single person. I made choices about myself very easily. I didn't have to consult anyone about the choices that I was about to make. I just chose to do what I wanted to do. I chose to spend my money the way I wanted to spend it. And I slept in my queen-size bed all by myself. And I could starfish and no one could tell me what to do with a doona, where to put the pillow, or where the dividing wall of hostility was in our bed. And yet when I got married, all of those things changed. I had to share the bed. I got told how to tuck in the sheets and where to put the dune and where the pillows went, where the dividing wall was and where to sleep and how to sleep. And, and we literally bought the firmest mattress you could possibly buy so that, you know, Tash couldn't feel me rolling around and moving. And apparently I'm like, you know, doing cartwheels in bed in the middle of the night. But um, too far. The point is, the point is, When I got married, things changed. I stopped living like a single person. I had to consult someone about my decisions. My decisions about my finances all of a sudden were joint decisions and not single decisions. Now, it wouldn't make sense for me as a married man to begin to live or continue to live like a single person, would it? It wouldn't make sense for my choices to reflect anything other than this new identity that we have, that the two have become one, or that we have a family and children and they need to be factored into the financial decision. I can't just go buy all the motorbikes I want and buy the cars that I want, the clothes that I want. I've got to, those decisions change. And if I was to live like a single person, and I'm not saying the single people in the room, this illustration is going really bad. All of the implications of this is that single people just live really flippantly and that's just not true. So I'm, I need to think of another illustration. But what I'm saying is, there's a significant shift that has happened. We used to live one way. We now live an entirely different way. And it's just not appropriate for us to live here when we've been found in Christ. Paul is saying that there is no way that grace gives us a license to loose living. We've died to sin. We have new life in him. And since you have new life, your old life has dead. You're alive to Christ and we live in him, free, no longer bound 
to our master, our old master's sin. And that's the second thing that Paul says. We have new life in Christ. Secondly, we have a new master. Have a look at verse 15. He asks the same question, but in a different way. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Answer? Hell no. Thank you. Hell no. By no means. No way. So it's the same question, just worded a little bit differently. The first question is, well, if grace abounds, if you know, where sin increases, grace increases all the more, then surely I can just keep sinning because grace covers everything. This one is a little bit different. This one is that since we're no longer under the law, but under grace, therefore the law doesn't matter. I don't have to worry about the law. Then I don't have to worry about all the rules and the regulations. I'm free to do whatever I want because the, the rules are done with. And Paul's answer here again is by no means. Why? Because you have a new master. Have a look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who, to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. His point is this. Whoever you obey, whoever you offer yourself to, whoever you give yourself towards, that thing is your master. And here he says there's, there's only two choices. Your master is either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. There's no middle ground here for Paul. It's one or the other. It's the same thing as Jesus says in the Gospels, right? You cannot serve both God and money. Our, our affections, our attentions cannot be divided. We will either love one and hate the other or love the other and hate the one. And that's what Paul's saying here. You, you have one master and that master is the thing that you offer yourself to, the thing that you give yourself to and is it either sin or obedience. Remember, we're talking here, not little s, all the sins you do, but big capital S, sin, as a ruler, as a dominion, as a power. We have one master and sin is not it. Sin is not your master anymore. You do not owe a debt to sin because death has been paid and conquered and defeated. A number of years ago, I had a friend who had a, a horrible boss at work. Her manager was just horrendous, treated her really poorly, made her do things that were outside of her job description, threatened her, bullied her, did all sorts of mean things to her. She was considering whether or not she should leave or whether or not she should you know, file some form of legal complaint against her boss. It was such a horrible time for her. And then after a, a number of months... She got a promotion and they moved her divisions. So same company, same, same banner, but she worked in a different division, different department, completely different area of specialization with a different hierarchy of authority above her. And yet her old manager would still email her and tell her to do things for her and try and manipulate her and bully her. And she would email back, I don't work for you anymore, Send. She no longer has that old cranky manager as her boss. She's not answerable to her. She has the freedom to say, you know what? You can't tell me what to do. 
And so the next time temptation rears its face towards you, the next time you feel stuck on the treadmill of that perpetual sin, you send sin back the email, I don't work for you anymore. I don't answer to you. You don't have power or authority over me. You are not my master. Jesus is. You are free. But we're not free entirely. Because you'll notice there that Paul says that you're either a slave to this or you're a slave to that. So we're not a slave to sin, but we are a slave to righteousness. That we offer ourselves not to our old ways, not to our sinful patterns, but we offer ourselves to Jesus to be used for his ways and for his good and for his glory. And there's a difference between these two masters. One leads to death, the other leads to life, and in fact, eternal life. That's why Paul will say the way that you use your body has significance. Have a look at verse 12 to 14. He says this, Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign or rule or control in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of for righteousness. What he's talking about there, that language of presenting is the sacrificial language. It's the offering that is brought. And that's what we do to an idol, to a God, is that we offer. And the language of members there, he's talking literally about the parts of your body. Do not offer the parts of your body as an offering, as a sacrifice that you offer to your sin nature. In fact, offer them to God as an act of worship as an instrument of righteousness, literally as a weapon of righteousness, a weapon for good. Because you have no debt here. This is no longer your master. You do not bow to your sin. You have a new master. And so you can offer yourself to him as a weapon, an instrument of righteousness, an instrument of good. So can we sin? That grace may increase? Can we forget about the rules and the law because, hey, we're under grace and this doesn't count anymore? Paul's answer is a clear hell no. By no means. Why? You have a new life. It's inconsistent to say, I live here, but I participate here. You have a new master. You don't offer yourselves back there. You offer yourself here to God. It's not how we live anymore. Why? Because despite the fact that grace is free, grace is never cheap. It costs Jesus everything and it changes everything for us. You know, a number of years ago, my cousin Josh, who lives in South Africa, was at the beach. He's a very, very um, strong swimmer, played uh, water polo, representative water polo, most of his uh, young adult life. He's a very big, strong boy. And he was at the beach one day and he noticed a guy drowning just out the back. And so he rushed out, swam out behind the waves and grabbed this guy. The guy was wrestling with him and he said to him, look, you need to relax and let me swim you back to shore or you're going to drown. He literally scooped him up, probably the last couple of breaths this guy had before he sank to the bottom and drowned. 
And as he started to try and swim this guy back to the shore, he realized that the rip and the current was so strong, he couldn't get back to shore. And so instead of trying to fight against it, he turned around and swam with the rip and swam out the ocean. And we're talking like South Africa, shark-infested waters, right? He swam out around the headland, around to the next beach, and swam this guy back onto the beach. It took about 40 minutes for that journey to happen, right? He literally saved this guy's life, drags him onto the shore, heaving, panting, exhausted. And the guy that he's just rescued gets up and just walks off. Not a word. Not even a thank you for saving my life. And what Paul is saying here is when we live in cheap grace, it's like we've just been rescued by God and we get up and we just walk away. Not a word of thanks. Not a moment of repentance. Not a desire for transformation. Not a conviction of the spirit that leads to genuine remorse and repentance in our lives. Paul says that's not how it works. We don't live like that anymore. We have a new life. You have a new master and your life is lived in heartfelt, joyful obedience and response to what he has just done for you. He has rescued you. You were drowning and as a gift of grace, he has pulled you up, saved you, brought you to dry land, put your feet on a rock and the response that we have is, God, take my everything. My life is yours. I give it all to you. Change me, transform me. We're not perfect. Of course we're not perfect. No one's perfect. But we are continually being changed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus because we don't live under the dominion of sin. Because we don't have sin as our master any longer. We're free. We have a new life and a new master. Grace is free, but it is definitely not cheap. That story about Philip Yancey who had one of his parishioners come to him and say, Pastor, will God forgive me for what I'm about to do? What was his response? Far wiser than mine would ever have been. He said a number of things, but the things that stuck out for me was this. He said, can God forgive? Of course he can, yes. Read the pages of the Bible. God is a forgiving God. That's what he does. And then he responded in his wisdom with a question. He said, you keep asking me about forgiveness now, but my question is for you, will you want it then? Will you really want it then? Because when we play in the domain of the flesh, we're we're living in the old self. We're defaulting back to our slavery. We've been set free. Israel has crossed the river. They've been baptized through the river. They've been set free. And yet the desire is to go back to Pharaoh, back to Egypt, back to slavery. Why do we do that? We've been set free. The chains that once bound us of sin's dominion have been unshackled. And we're called by the power of the Spirit to walk in freedom. That's the work that grace does in our lives. That's the work that I need to do in my life. It's the work that Paul says in 
Titus 2, 11 and 12, that it is the grace of God that teaches us, trains us to say no to ungodliness, no to unrighteousness, and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present generation while we await the appearing of our Saviour. May that be true of us, church.